Two of the most high-profile CEOs in America shared their thinking on the immediate future of work and the economy. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined today by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with Salesforce, because first quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected. Interesting to me that Salesforce raised their earnings guidance for the full fiscal year while actually lowering their full year guidance for revenue. I guess that means they're planning on spending less money? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they are they are definitely going to keep an eye on the expense line. I think they, they talked of uh, measured hiring and just making sure that they're uh, getting the most bang uh, for their buck, so to speak, and and yeah, I mean they the downward guide on the revenue side really seemed to be more uh, tied to foreign uh, currency uh, impacts, and so that's something you know we we typically view those as as over the long haul, you know, over the course of years, we view those as, as more or less a wash, so to speak, right? We don't we don't get too terribly worked over uh, worked up over foreign currency uh, effects. But I mean it's always worth keeping in mind that it that it does exist and it certainly seems like that's what um, they they were guiding down to. And the guide down was very, very slight, right? I mean extremely slight based on the guidance that they that they gave uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter uh, just just a quarter ago. But but all things considered, I mean, it was it was a really strong start to the year for Salesforce. I mean, revenue of seven point four one billion dollars that was up twenty six percent in constant currency that outperformed their own expectations. Operating cash flow just under three point seven billion dollars that was up fourteen percent from a year ago as well. Um, again, to the guidance for full year fiscal twenty twenty three, uh, they're guiding in a range of thirty one point seven billion to thirty one point eight billion, and that still represents around twenty percent growth. Both for the full year, and the neat thing about Salesforce, because they're pursuing this this huge market right in CRM, that customer relationship management. Being the market leader has really given them the opportunity to play a lot of offense, and they've assembled a lot of very powerful uh, tools, a lot of very powerful brands under their umbrella, so to speak, that that has helped move this business forward. Um, you know, we we talk about their data business, right? The data cloud business that includes properties like MuleSoft and Tableau. Those that data data cloud business grew fifteen percent uh, over a year ago. The sales cloud and service cloud businesses—they're both six billion dollar plus businesses now. And in, in, in the uh, the quarter, they grew uh, eighteen and seventeen percent respectively. And then, of course, I think Slack is is what people uh, remember um, probably the most. That's the the most recent acquisition that people people uh, remember. And that's actually working out very well. I think Slack on its own, uh, you know, I just, I just didn't see a lot happening there. I think Slack still is as a as a communication tool. It, it, frankly, to me, it feels like it needs a lot of work. Um, but but it just hasn't really done. It's still kind of the same thing it's always been since we started using it. But being a part of the Salesforce family, that gives Salesforce a chance to really leverage that property. Across all of the all of the the customers that they have, and so they've been very productive with that acquisition. They said that uh, Slack outperformed revenue expectations with 348 million dollars in the quarter versus 330 million they were expecting, uh, and the number of customers there spending more than 100 thousand dollars annually grew 45 percent from a year ago. So so all things together, great start to the year. I certainly understand the market's enthusiasm today. 
I was going to say, it was six years ago this month that Microsoft announced they were buying LinkedIn for $26 billion. And you and I, and other people who have been on this show, kind of looked at each other and thought, <laughs> okay, well, I guess you can do that if you want. I'm not really sure how you're going to make that work. And then, at some point in the last six months, in one of Microsoft's earnings reports, I remember they came out and they broke out, sort of, here's what LinkedIn is doing in revenue. And we were all, one, we were reminded of the fact that Microsoft owned LinkedIn, but we were also all surprised at how much revenue LinkedIn was bringing in under the Microsoft umbrella. So I, I was going to ask you about Slack and sort of how the, you know what grade we're giving that now. But maybe we give Salesforce a couple more years because certainly, if you were grading Microsoft a year or so into the LinkedIn acquisition, it probably wouldn't have been a very good grade. No, probably not. I mean, it was a little bit of a head scratcher at the time, and it's still kind of a head scratcher as to how they're exploiting so much value from that. Because, frankly, every time I check in on LinkedIn, I kind of wonder why did I just do that. It just <laughs> it it's it doesn't seem to be. It's just a very noisy experience, uh, so so I don't know. I mean, maybe that uh, they're able to to really uh, do something with all of that data, but but clearly it's worked out very well for Microsoft. And I and I think we're seeing the same signs here with with Slack and Salesforce. I mean, when you look at it in the context of the overall business, right? I mean, Slack you know essentially three hundred fifty million dollars in revenue for the quarter versus the seven point four billion dollars that the company generated. So it's it's kind of a drop in the bucket right now, um, but again. Given Salesforce's reach, given the number of customers, given its market leading position in CRM, I think you know Slack is just it's it's a platform they can leverage very effectively as a communication tool. Lots of businesses around uh, the country, around the world, um, are, are using Slack to communicate, and and so I mean the signs are there that it is growing. Um, again, you go back to that number of customers spending more than one hundred thousand dollars annual. I mean forty five percent year over year is is nothing to nothing to sneeze at. Um, but but with that said, yeah, I, I don't know that it's going to be. I don't know that it's going to be some massive needle mover for the business uh, in the near term, at least. But I think it just it, it's one more tool that they add to their toolbox in, in what is a market they pursue in CRM that just it, it requires it requires doing a lot of things very well. Unfortunately, Mark Mark Benioff had he had that vision early on of how, of how to really piece this business together, and so all of these acquisitions along the way, he's just made some really really good moves there. And I, and I feel like Slack is good. Is going to ultimately be another one. I want to get your thoughts on the CEO comments of the day. And we'll start with Elon Musk because he sent a couple of email to employees and it had to do with going back to the office. And I'll quote directly from one of the emails. If you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. Anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum, and I mean minimum, of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. This is less than we ask of factory workers. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me from a communication standpoint is the juxtaposition of factory workers. Uh, he's basically saying to executives, we got people in factories who are on site doing this. Um, and if you don't want to be on site, uh, I, I'm I'm going to essentially 
uh, color you with uh, being elitist. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, it's it's yeah, maybe maybe that's maybe that's something that entered his mind the 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 sort of elitist um, perspective there. I, I feel like. I feel like with with Musk, you know, he he has done so much to get this business to where it is today, right? I mean, he has he's he's done it all. He's been there in the trenches. He's he's spent nights in the factory. Like I he has a very personal connection to this business and I and I feel like it, it's hard to argue that he doesn't have some genuine perspective here. I mean, I there there're going to be some businesses I would imagine where you know, you could say okay, a, a remote workforce can get by and everything. Um but it, it reminds me of an article I read back at the beginning of the year when it was talking about young employees uh losing out on on not going to an office. Um, you know, as business experts say, young employees are, are they're missing out. And uh, I mean, there are a lot of people out there that that have entered the workforce that have never dealt with an office environment, so they don't really have a comparison. Um, I, I, the the thing that stood out to me, the quote that stood out to me, Musk's quote, was when he said, "There are, of course, companies that don't require this, but when was the last time they shipped a great new product? It's been a while." And that's that's a broad statement, right? I mean, I don't know that he was targeting any company in particular, but but I think it does speak to the 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 shortcomings of a of a virtual or a remote workforce. I think having having that hybrid workforce, offering that hybrid option, remote work is a nice feature of an overall strategy. But as a standard, I think what we're finding here over the, over the last couple of years, it can be very limiting, uh, particularly with with some businesses as opposed to others. I mean, it, it does. Feel like at least it, it it does result in in siloed workforces. I mean, it, however, company defines its culture. I mean, it it does feel like it's hard to maintain a culture as, as a remote company. Um, but but also, you just you know, collaboration really takes a massive hit. I mean, you just don't have those spur of the moment conversations. You don't have those face to face meetings where you're really kind of going through ideas and, and trying to come up with that next lightning in a bottle idea. And for for Tesla, I mean, that's really the foundation of this company is innovation. And he knows that the competitive landscape now for Tesla is far stronger than it's ever been. So they have to really be on their game. And and so you know, he he said something in there. Listen, we're we're just not going to settle for people uh, phoning it in. And and uh, I, I think in this case, I, I certainly respect it. I understand it. Um, and and. You know, hey, the leaders have to get in there and make difficult calls. But I think, given his personal connection to to this business, and given everything that he has personally put into it, honestly, I think it gives him the right to make this call. And and I think that if you don't like it, go find a job somewhere else. Because I bet you there are a lot of people out there that would love to be a part of that family. It's really going to be interesting to see over the next three to six months, how all of this plays out. Not just with Tesla, yeah. with uh, other large companies that are, are trying uh, the hybrid approach. Uh, you think about Airbnb, uh, Brian Chesky coming out and saying, we want to be fully remote, but we're going to, once a quarter, every team is going to get together for a week. Uh, I, I feel like we're all going to be smarter about what works and what doesn't work six months from now than we are now. Uh, let me get your thoughts on the other CEO comments of the day, and that's Jamie Dimon, who's at a financial conference today in New York City, and said that he is prepping J.P. Morgan Chase for an economic hurricane. <laughs> this was a room full of analysts and investors, and he said, you know, things seem fine at the moment, 
and nobody knows, and I'm quoting now, nobody knows if the hurricane is a minor one or Superstorm Sandy. You better brace yourself. JP Morgan is bracing ourselves, and we're going to be very conservative with our balance sheet. And I don't, this is me talking now, I don't own shares of JP Morgan Chase, but Jamie Dimon is one of those leaders. I am always interested in what he has to say, particularly when it's about the broader economy. Yeah, I agree. I, I always take into consideration his perspective because he clearly has a a, a good one. He has, he has a good good insight into into what's going on in the in the economy from from a global perspective. And and ultimately, we have to look at this from a global perspective today, right? I mean. I think what we're seeing, the confluence of events that are going on all around the world, are showing just how interconnected our economy is. Right? It's no longer just a domestic economy; it really is a global economy in many cases. And I think you look at everything that's going on. And he, I think he was he was referring to two specific things. I mean, it was it was not it was not exclusive to just these two points. But I think he called out the quantitative tightening, right, as opposed to the easing. I mean, the money supply is going to shrink. I mean, it's it's not going to be the same sort of free money environment that we've been living. In over the past decade plus, and uh, that that is is going to to hamper economic activity. But then also, you look at what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, and I mean that's another example of something that's ultimately out of of our control. It's out it's out of most uh, most of the world's control. But it's something that appears to be dragging on and on and on uh, with with no real end in sight. And there are consequences that come from that. Right? We've seen its its impact on on energy, uh, but there are also unforeseen consequences that we really can't even determine yet. Um, and given the global nature of of the economy, uh, it, it's something that really uh, comes into play. Um, you look at some of the data out there today. I mean, obviously, inflation is is uh, hitting a lot of people where it hurts. You look at consumer sentiment; it's the lowest in ten years. And remember, that's a backward, that's a lagging indicator. So it kind of tells us about the past, how people are feeling, as opposed to the market. That's a forward-looking mechanism. Um, and then also, you look at the personal savings rate now. I mean, the personal savings rate is its lowest since 2008 at 4.4 percent. Uh, there, I don't think uh, are going to be many calls for additional stimulus at this point, and and with that in mind, it does feel like a lot of the stimulus that has been pumped through the economy has now been drained, and so uh, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to to have the bank in a good position from a balance sheet perspective because you never really do know what the future holds. But one thing you can do. Uh, as opposed to trying to predict the future, I've said this before. We don't focus on predicting the future; just prepare for it. And there are plenty of signs out there today that just just tell us that hey, you know what? Probably a good probably a good idea to be uh, to to be safe than sorry. And, and and it sounds like that's where he's coming from here. And and I, I hope it's not a hurricane. I hope maybe we're looking at worse a tropical storm. But I do understand where sentiment sentiment's coming from. Appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Summer concert season is here, and if you're going to a concert, there's a good chance it's a show presented by Live Nation. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Yagane Torbati of The Washington Post about her reporting on Live Nation and how the company may have benefited from millions of dollars in grants intended for small businesses. Joining us now 
is Yegana Torbati, an economic policy reporter for The Washington Post. She's co-authoring the series The COVID Money Trail, along with Tony Rahm. They recently wrote the article headlined, quote, Live Nation subsidiaries got millions in aid meant for independent venues. Welcome, Yegana. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Live Nation is not just concert tickets, it also owns venues like the House of Blues, runs festivals including Austin City Limits and, and Lollapalooza, owns talent management firms and sells sponsorships for their shows. Uh, this is a vertically integrated business that Congress very much does not like. Is that fair to say? I think in some ways, yes, it's definitely a company that um, over the course of the last 20 years or so has really focused on growth um, via acquisition and kind of rolling up some of these smaller venues, smaller companies, um, regional chains into a business that sort of extends, of course, across the country, but then also throughout uh, the Middle East, South America, Europe, et cetera. Um, that's really been a focus of Live Nation over the past couple decades. And, you know, it's gotten them into some trouble. Um, the merger in um, 2009, 2010 with Ticketmaster was really a source of a lot of controversy. Um, that was allowed to go forward by the Justice Department, but under certain um, rules and restrictions. And um, a couple years ago, the Justice Department found that Live Nation had actually violated um, those those rules and that and that kind of um, settlement over that over that merger. And so I would say, yeah, it's it's very true that Live Nation is not super popular um, among members of Congress um, on Capitol Hill. I'd say that's probably fairly bipartisan, although maybe a little bit more pronounced on the Democratic side. And that has affected um, you know, some of the ways that members of Congress approach Live Nation, even on some unrelated issues. So, as Congress doled out trillions of dollars in relief funding, they very much tried to leave Live Nation out of the arts funding as a part of the Save Our Stages program. So, how did Live Nation perhaps find a side door where they benefited from about $19 million in uh, Small Business Administration loans? Right. So this was sort of the, the, the crux of our reporting. Um, and what we found was that, you know, Live Nation over time has purchased all sorts of different venues, or at least purchased stakes in these different venues and different businesses, including talent management firms as well. And so um, what occurred in this case is that Congress very specifically wanted this pot of funds um, known as the Save Our Sages Act or the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. It wanted um, that you know, $15, $16 billion in funding to go to independent venues, independent companies. And they wrote into the law that the money couldn't go to publicly traded companies or companies that are majority owned or controlled by publicly traded companies. And there were some other restrictions in there as well. Our reporting found that that rule was very much sort of in the minds of some members of Congress, very much aimed at companies like Live Nation and Live Nation specifically. And that that was that happened, you know, despite a lot of lobbying by Live Nation to be included in that legislation. But you know, Congress decided they didn't want that, and so you know that that lobbying was not successful. However, what we saw happen was that um, several companies that are fifty percent owned by Live Nation, so they're not technically majority owned, but Live Nation is um, their largest shareholder. Several companies um, that fit that description or are otherwise listed as subsidiaries of Live Nation on their public you know, annual report that they file with the SEC, they managed to get funds. And you know, we did a lot of reporting on this. We talked to people at Live Nation. We got statements from them as well as the companies in question. Their argument is that uh, these are uh, independent, you know, technically small businesses. They followed all the rules and they received these funds. 
but I think, you know, we, we tried to get across in sort of a nuanced way that even though those companies um, are independent, the fact that they received these funds still benefited Live Nation in the long term because really its business is made up of these subsidiaries. Uh, who are some of these subsidiaries? So um, these subsidiaries include um, a company called Frank Productions Concerts, which is a itself sort of part of Frank Productions, um, which is kind of a major regional um, concert promoter based in Wisconsin. And Live Nation bought a majority stake in Frank Productions back in 2018. But according to what the company told us, Frank Productions, Live Nation does not have a majority stake in Frank Productions Concerts, which is the entity that got the $10 million from this um, grant program. Um, another of the companies is um, one called Gelman Management, um, which is a management firm with offices in Nashville and California. And um, they received a small amount, around $400,000 or so, um, but Live Nation bought a 50% stake in Gelman Management over a decade ago now. Um, and then the other two are a pair of venues in St. Louis um, that kind of sit next to each other um, on the Del Mar Loop, and they are each 50% owned by Live Nation as well. And what were these subsidiaries doing with uh, the money from the SBA loans? Um, and so, just to clarify, these are actually not loans; they are they are, are grants, grants. Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. So they don't they don't these companies don't have to pay it back. You know, they say that these grants really help them survive. They paid um, employees. They were able to pay their vendors. They were able to kind of make sure things were going, um, even when they nece- they didn't necessarily need the employees because everything was shut down. Even just being able to, of course, pay those people who had lost their jobs or whose jobs were furloughed, and also sort of like keep a connection with them meant that when those companies were ready to start up again and um, performances were going again and and things were happening, they sort of had a workforce that they had a a longer standing connection to than if they had just, you know, had to cut them completely. And your reporting also, you know, there may have been cases where these subsidiaries were not taking loans directly from Live Nation because they were able to get these grants. Right. So, um, the, the CEO of Frank Productions, told me in an interview um, that, you know, they had had a loan facility um, with Live Nation, but in part because of sort of what he called conservative fiscal management um, of, of, of their resources. And then also because of this grant, they did not have to draw on that. And in another case, we actually found the opposite. We found that um, one of the St. Louis venues called the pageant actually did take out a loan from Live Nation and from its other owners. One of the owners declined to tell me kind of what how much that loan was for, but it does show that like Live Nation was playing a major role in this entity's survival. So how at the end of the day, how meaningful is this nineteen million dollars for Live Nation's business? I mean, this is a company that did six point two billion dollars in, in revenue in twenty twenty one. And in these grants, even if they which they did not, even if they went directly to Live Nation, that would represent about eight Harry Styles concerts for them in terms of revenue. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, you know, we we um, wrestled a lot with this story over kind of the nuances of it. Clearly, nineteen million dollars, you know, in some ways is a rounding error for a company like Live Nation. Um, and and you know, as we point out, there doesn't does not appear to have been any fraud, at least according to what we could find out. It seems like all these companies really followed the letter of the law, um, although some would argue maybe not the spirit of the law. So, you know, this is it's hard to argue that this made a life or death difference for Live Nation. I think the only point that the story, I think, successfully makes is that 
at the end of the day, it did, it did improve their prospects at least slightly, because if these companies are able to survive, live to see another day, um, post COVID continue to put on shows, you know, it's just, it just means that that much faster, they can start making payments to live nation again, you know, kind of provide the, the same um, benefits that any subsidiary would in terms of passing on profits to the owners. So it's, it's a small benefit, but it is a benefit. And it did seem to be one that in our reporting um, seems to have gone against the intent of Congress. Um, and so that's why we thought it was important to, to report this out. And this is just one small piece of your reporting on the COVID money trail. Well, I hope you guys find where uh, the $163 billion went for uh, unemployment fraud soon. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 try to work on that. Um, us and you know all the federal investigators that are working on it. Um, that's that's a you know a kind of a crazy story, and a lot of people were victims of that. But um, but yeah, it's definitely something that we continue to look into. Yegana Torbati is an economic policy reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us on Motley Full Money. Thank you so much for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.